Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be uh, moving back into the world of literature, and I'm going to be talking about Langston Hughes. In particular, I'm going to focus on one poem of Langston Hughes, um, but I'm focusing on this poem mainly because this really does show a lot of connections and show a lot of direction of literature in the 20th century. Um, this this piece connects very well with um, the traditions in America and kind of ties a lot of them together. Not only the literary traditions, but also political and social traditions. And so I wanted to uh, spend all of my time basically just covering this one poem by Langston Hughes. Uh, the name of the poem is Let America Be America Again. Um, <clears throat> starts out, Let America Be America Again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. And then in parentheses he has below that, America never was America to me. He starts out kind of giving you almost what you would see in like, you know, glorification and in propaganda, but he doesn't do it in a cynical way that says this isn't something worth having. Um, he kind of gives this and says, this is what we've been told, this is what we've been taught, but we haven't been taught the whole story. So when he says, let America be America again, you know, he's talking about, we've had, there's two two ideas of America. There, there's two part, there's two Americas, I should say. There's the idea, the ideal of it, and then there's the actual physical place with its history. And these aren't always the same. There are overlaps. You know, he's not uh, coming into this, you know, full of hate and full of anger. Um, he, he's coming into this really trying to look at the way things really are and only in doing that can you really start to move things in a better direction. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that literature and poetry um, have been censored heavily throughout history really is that they are very political underneath. Um, they do often have a lot of political and social messages. Um, this is one of the reasons that, you know, there was a lot of censorship. If it didn't seem like the poetry that was out there was just singing the praises of whoever was in charge, uh, it would tend to either be, you know, censored or just basically kept away from the public. So one of the things we start to see in this is, you know, he's going to give us two different views. He's going to give us the idealized view that we were taught in school and then he's going to talk about the way things really were. Now, this poem could have been written today. Um, this is something that is still very much relevant today. And if you don't believe me, just think about critical race theory. You know, the idea of talking about how race has played a role in the history of, you know, people of color, but also in the history of the country itself. You know, we don't have separate Americas that have separate histories. Uh, history is often taught that way. It's taught from very limited perspectives. But when you're talking about very limited perspectives, you're not really getting 
a whole understanding of what's going on because all of these different perspectives, all of these different um, parts of society are not in a vacuum away from each other. They're all building on each other and influencing each other. And one of the things about, you know, Hughes that is, you know, a, a very much a affirmation of this is two of his idols, two of the people that he patterned a lot of his writing after were Walt Whitman and Carl Sandburg, you know, people who wrote about regular Americans, you know, they, uh, Whitman is the, you know, part of the American romantic movement where you're, you know, he's not talking about uh, necessarily, you know, great generals and presidents, although he does have things about Lincoln later on, as does Sandberg. But the majority of his poetry and the majority of Sandberg's poetry has to do with everyday people, the regular people that don't, you know, get put into heroic tales, the people who don't even get their story told most of the time, the people that, you know, the upper classes and the the middle class would prefer didn't even exist and, and don't even want to look in that direction. And one of the things that Langston Hughes does, and he does it very deliberately, is he sees this inclusiveness of Whitman and he says, okay, and now I want to add the you know African-American voice to this song. He wouldn't have used the term African-American. He would have used the term Negro. That was the term when he was alive that he would have used. He was alive from 1902 to 1967. But let's get back into a little more of this poem. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be the great strong land of love where kings never connived nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. You know, this is, you know, first he goes into this idea of, you know, this country was set up by people who did not want kings. They did not want emperors. They wanted, you know, representative government. They wanted limited power. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have these tyrants crushing everyone. Um, but that's not the reality of things. You know, you, if you look at history through, you know, especially the 1800s, late 1800s and into the 1900s, early 1900s under industrialization, you do have people who are not kings, but they become as powerful as kings. You know, you have the, um, you know, the wealthy uh, factory owners, you have the wealthy railroad owners, you have these people who have almost unlimited power over the people below them. You have to remember the people below them, the workers had no rights. There were no worker protections. There were no, there wasn't even... It wasn't even legal for workers to strike. Um, so even though we didn't have people that were officially called kings or emperors, we had people that were wielding very much the same power. And Hughes is, is drawing attention to this. <clears throat> uh, oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. So, you know, he kind of draws attention to the fact of, you know, people like to rally behind the flag and talk about freedom and, you know, liberty and things like that. And that's a beautiful dream. And those are beautiful ideas. 
But Hughes says, now look at reality. This is not what we're living. This is not what I'm living. Um, uh, say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? So you have this voice that comes in that's kind of questioning the narrator. Remember, there's, there's a difference in the narrator and the author. The narrator is the voice telling a story. The author is the physical person who wrote the story. And so you have a someone coming in and questioning the narrator in this and saying, who are you to, you know, kind of say that everything isn't as perfect and glorious as we've been taught? And he goes into the next stanza and he tells you, next stanzas, and he tells you who he is. I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching to the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, the bondsman to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the Negro servant to you all. I am the people hungry. Hum, I'm sorry. I am the people humbly, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today, O oh pioneers. I am the man who never got ahead. The poorest worker bartered through the years. So he tells you who he is. He's not just um, you know, Langston Hughes. He's not just uh, the the African Americans. He's also the poor whites. He's also the indigenous people who have been pushed off the land. He's also the immigrants who were brought to this country and promised, you know, a better life and then, you know, left to, um, you know, work themselves to death in the factory. You know, remember we talked about The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. You know, this is what was going on in the jungle. All of these different groups of immigrants kept being brought in to work in the, the stockyards in Chicago were basically ground up, destroyed, and then they'd bring in another group from another country to replace them. Um, and this is very much where you see the tradition of Whitman and Sandberg. You know, you can see the influence here because this is these are things that both Whitman and Sandberg did. You know, they didn't while they had, you know, claimed their individual identity, they were also claiming an identity of the people. They were also singing songs for the people you don't get to hear their songs. Um, you know, Hughes is also influenced heavily by jazz and blues and folk music, you know, and all of these are musics um, that, that start out as musics of not only the common people, but the people that are kind of crushed under society, the people that are crushed under, um, you know, the system. And in, you know, the, uh, in the one line, uh, beaten yet today, O Pioneers, uh, O Pioneers is actually a direct reference to Walt Whitman because that's a poem by Walt Whitman. Um, and, and, you know, Sandberg also writes poems about the pioneer. So it's also a reference to, it's an allusion to both of them directly. <clears throat> the poem goes on. The free, who said the free? Not me, surely not me. 
The millions on relief today, the millions shot down when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed, all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay, except the dream that's almost dead today. Um, again, you know, he's drawing you back to, you were taught this history of, you know, it was glorious, it was great, everybody was happy, everybody was prosperous, and what what was really taught was the history of the people at the top. This was never the history of most of the people. Uh, most of the people, you know, are told to be patriotic, wave the flag, love your country, and, you know, enjoy your freedom, while in reality they had very little freedom. <clears throat> okay, goes on. Let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must, must bring back our mighty dream again. So, you know, this is very much a call of, we're not going to be rescued by the people at the top. The politicians and the rich people aren't going to come and save us. If we want to save our, you know, be saved, um, the working people, the people who are toiling at the bottom, uh, need to be the ones to make this stuff happen. You know, kind of think of the ideas of grassroots movement. Think of the ideas of, you know, bottom-up systems instead of top-down, where the people who are actually toiling and doing all of the work, you know, receive the benefit of it receive a voice for it. And this is one of the things that has always been a fear of the ruling class in this country, was the voice of the people. I talked about this in, you know, some of my lectures on power. The way that the Constitution was set up, it was set up to ensure the rights of the rich against the majority. So it was set up to give the idea that there was, you know, majority rule, the, the idea that it was things were democratic, but in reality, all of the power was set to be in the hands of only the few. You know, this is why the Senate was originally set up the way it was. It wasn't until the 20th century the Senate was an elected body. Uh, prior to the 20th century, each state legislature would pick two people and send them to Washington as their senators. Starting in the beginning of the 20th century, this starts to shift. Senators become elected directly. This is the reason for the Electoral College. You know, the founders had the idea that one day the people might vote for, since they're the majority, they might vote for a candidate who isn't going to care about what the rich want and who is actually going to do things for the working class and the poor. And if the people ever make that decision and vote for that person as president, the Electoral College is actually the one who elects the president and had the ability to say, yeah, we're just going to disregard the vote and vote for whoever we want. Now, this also has been modified some as many states have passed laws saying, you know, no matter whether you like it or not, whatever our state majority votes for, that's where you must cast your votes. But not every state has that law, and that wasn't originally in the Constitution. So you can see these are very um, 
radical ideas. And this is one of the things that a lot of people who aren't familiar with poetry don't understand. You know, you think about, most people think about poetry, they think about, oh, it's about love, it's about trees, it's about flowers, or it's about being sad. Yes, those things are all covered in poetry, but there's also a great deal of it that is very political. There's a great deal of it that is very much about day-to-day -day life and day-to-day -day struggles. Okay, uh, going on in the poem. Uh, sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. This is a pretty direct arrow shot at the wealthy who who run the country, you know, saying, you know, these people are getting all the money, they're accumulating all the wealth like leeches. We're the ones doing all the work and they're getting all the benefits. As you can tell, there's a lot of, you know, where people would throw this under being socialism or even communism, because this is ideas of, you know, this is counter to the idea of, well, the capitalists create wealth, so of course they deserve to keep it all. This is much more the idea of, no, the workers create wealth and the workers should have a bigger say in how the wealth is used and how the wealth is controlled. <clears throat> um, then it goes on. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to be, to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft, stealth, and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. And that's how he ends the poem. So again, this, you know, starting out, you might think, okay, this is going to be, you know, a rant against the country. This is going to be something saying, you know, this place is terrible and, you know, we should just leave it or just destroy it all. And this is not the message at all. The message here is there's a lot of beautiful potential here. There's a lot of beautiful ideas we've been told about. And if we ever want those ideas to become reality, then we actually have to roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty, and work towards the right things. You know, work towards making it a better place. And work together. You know, if you, if you notice, he didn't direct this towards any one group. This wasn't direct, directed towards just people of color. This wasn't directed towards just poor whites. This wasn't directed towards just the indigenous. He makes this inclusive. He's like, we're the majority when we're all together. We're the ones that can make things better. And again, this is one of the, th the things that people who are at the top and in power do not like to hear. They do not like to hear people getting together, people working together. Um, you know, why do you think there's such a push by the extreme right to, you know, radicalize people um, and polarize them by race and say, you know, you know, the white people all have to stick together and, you know, that because, you know, the people of color are all going to stick together and they're going to come after us. Because if you can keep dividing people like this and, you know, Langston Hughes is pointing this out clearly all the way back in the 1950s or 60s when he wrote this that you know this is what's being done this polarization uh this getting people to at the bottom to fight each other 
is simply a way to keep everyone from being free. And if you, you know, actually do start to understand things about critical race theory, which I highly recommend people look into it and study it, and I will have episodes in the future uh, talking about it, it really does get to matters like why things are the way they are. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, using the division of race, not only to hold people of color down, but to hold everyone down who is poor and working class, so that the people have someone to be angry at, rather than being angry at the people at the top of the system. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off this episode uh, here. My next episode, uh, I will be going into talking about the uh, uh, philosopher uh, James for pragmatism, and we're actually going to talk about his essay on pragmatism. Um, this is one of the early works of pragmatism. Uh, Charles uh, Sanders Peirce is really considered the founder of it. Uh, James is one of the big writers of it. Uh, another major writer of it is John Dewey. These are the earlier pragmatists. <clears throat> so we're going to be focusing on James for next time, though, and we will get into all of the other philosophers uh, as, as we go through and uh, sort of finish up our introduction on the 20th century. Uh, we also will be going through, after we've finished doing this second season of introductory episodes, we're going to kind of go back into each time period, both literary and philosophical, and we're going to dig deeper into the movements and into the individual uh, philosophers and writers. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.